pardon for sin and a peace that endureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Father, even as I, I've been studying this text, you have never left us. You have never left us to our own devices. You've never left us to, to try and do this in our own strength. You've given us this storehouse, this power that is in Christ. We can't count them. Blessings all mine with 10,000 besides. We could sing that. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. We don't have to despair if we're going through difficult times, God. And we thank you that you care for us, that you've given us all the riches in Christ, every spiritual blessing which are in Christ. We thank you for the strength and the power. We thank you for the spirit. And we thank you for this armor that we're going to be studying about. Father, I pray you would help that saint who is hurting. And Lord, those who don't know you, I pray, Father, that you would cause them to see the beauty that is in Christ, that they too can run to the fortress, to the shield for their sins and be forgiven and washed and cleansed. We pray you would give us ears to hear. Help me to preach. Help us to hear your word by your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Oftentimes, when saints will have difficult times or difficult problems in their lives, um, sometimes they're, they're, uh, they're su surprised when I ask them, well, what are you doing? Because they think that they believe that Christ, when he saves, he gives to us freely. That is true. His forgiveness is given by grace. That is true. But when we come to Christ, we become into this amazing spiritual battle and we find that as you become a christian things don't actually become easier very oftentimes or is maybe i'll say all the time you will notice that if you dedicate your life to christ it becomes more difficult relationships tend to be a little bit more strained those who don't want to follow christ and you who do want to follow christ as you seek after him they wonder why are you doing this now why is your relationship different or if you desire to live righteously, they wonder, why do you want to live in that manner? And as we've been going through this text, I'm just going to read uh, verses. We'll start from 14 and uh, finish in 17. We're only going to go through two verses, and we're going to be done with this section. And this is about spiritual battle and the spiritual armor that God has given us. It is used as a metaphor to allow us to get our minds and our hearts ready for the day of battle. And when we say battle, and when we say susceptibility to battle, what we're talking about is doubt. And what we're talking about is despair. And what we're talking about is weakness. And what we're talking about is the sense that maybe I don't, maybe I don't have the favor of God anymore. And God wants you to guard your heart. And he says how to guard your heart, it is through fight, through spiritual Christ-dependent fight. He says here in Ephesians chapter 6, Finally be strong, verse 10, in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And here's the command. Verse 14. Stand firm. Therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, 
taking up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish, extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And we remember from last time that God gave this passage so you would fight valiantly to bring glory to Christ in your life. He desires that you would not be passive in this. We receive salvation. We know that God has elected us from before the foundation of the world. We know that Christ has purchased our sins on the cross with his very own blood. God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, died on the cross. And we know that the Spirit of God came and applied that faith to us. So now we exercise faith as, we are being, as we've been born again. And with all these riches, he gives us his Spirit, he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, to be filled with the Spirit of God. That is to have our minds and our hearts yielded to his word such that now we draw strength from the spirit of God himself, the spirit that desires to glorify Christ. And now he moves on to this metaphor. And now Paul is talking from a Roman prison, seeing Roman soldiers go back and forth. It is a common sight with all of their garb put together. And he says, that is the metaphor I want to say to you. The saints. That we cannot be passive in this. Brothers and sisters, if you're in a point right now, a point in life where you're despairing or lonely or doubting God's plan in your life, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God doesn't have a plan for me. What am I doing with my life? Maybe, maybe I'm just supposed to just kind of sit on the shelf for the rest of my life and not do anything for God. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, God is not about that business. He desires that you would get up and to stand in His strength and to be filled with His power so that you could fight despair and doubt and temptation in this world. But it doesn't come simply by sitting down. The old adage of letting go and letting God if that's all you think Christian life is, I'm sorry, that statement is wrong. It doesn't show the whole picture of it. You ought to let go and you ought to get up. You ought to let go and get busy. You ought to let go, let trust in God, but get up, get back on that horse. We know in verses 10 through 16, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Verses 10 through 16, we've divided that as always prepare. Always prepare. First, harness your power. Depend on his power. It is God's strength that's going to get you through this. You're not going to be able to live the Christian life. You cannot keep his commandments in and by yourself. If you think you can, every time you try and reform yourself by your own strength, you fall on your face. I don't know about you. But the harder I try and discipline myself by my own strength, I fall on my face. And it doesn't honor God. It doesn't honor Christ. Christ desires to be your strength, right? He wants, well, he wants to be your strength. Why? Because at the end of the day, when you have gone through the battle, and I, uh, brothers and sisters, some of you have gone through some vicious battles. Okay, I know some of you probably have some scars from what you've had to go through. But at the end of the day, the very reason why you're still standing in Christ, still believing in His promises, still believing that your sins are forgiven, still believing that He still loves you, is simply because He has strengthened you with His power. And so what happens is, when people say, why are you still standing? I would have lost my mind if I went through what you went through. Why are you still standing? Why are you still serving God? I would have lost my mind. That's when you say, because God strengthened me. Do you see? He wants to glorify himself in your weakness. But he gets no glory when you say, I got it. I got it. I got it. He gets no glory. And so what God desires is for you to harness your power in Christ. 
depend on his aid. And in verses 11 through 12, as you are preparing, always prepare to know your enemy. The enemy desires for you to doubt. He desires for you to simply get your eyes off of Christ, to stop doing the things that you used to do, to stop trusting in him, to stop thinking that he has your own good, uh, your interest in mind, to stop thinking that he cares for you, your own doubts. He doesn't. He wants you to know that this is a this is a enemy. He desires for you to not look at Christ, so you would get off track, and that you would bring shame to him. You got to know your enemy. Secondly, verses fourteen to seventeen. Um, if the first portion is always prepare, the second portion is never yield. Never yield. And in verse 14, he says, Stand firm, therefore. All that God desires for you to do is to keep the faith, to keep believing in Jesus no matter what happens. To sound like Job as Job was talking to his wife when his wife wanted him to curse God. He said, The Lord gives, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm going to stand firm and keep believing in Jesus. Oh, Saint, do you believe in Jesus this Sunday? Do you still believe he loves you? Still believe your sins are forgiven in him? Keep fighting. Keep fighting. And so as he's writing from jail, he's staring at the soldiers. He's loving on the soldiers and he's sharing the gospel with them. We know that there's some soldiers who got saved. Uh, this is what we talked about a couple of weeks before, that he desires that we would be girded with truth. That is the belt, so that you're ready with the truth. And then in righteousness, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, that we'd be diligent in obedience to Christ, so that we would not be open to attack. When you are disobeying God, when you are disobeying Christ, you no longer have that shield. You, all, you, are no, you are now susceptible to his attacks, to his doubts, and that's where we're at. You ever notice that when you're in sin? You feel like, man, I just, I'm just compounding it because I'm sinning, and now I'm feeling attacked. Now God says that you must have put on the breastplate of righteousness and then the gospel, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel in peace. And now we take on these last three pieces for this Sunday, these last three pieces, faith, faith. Paul says, Paul says here, verse 16, in addition to all, all after you've put on all of this, take up the shield of faith, the shield of faith. I love studying weaponry and armory and battles of of yesteryear. I love it. But Paul, God would want us to know, he wants you to know that this is not, uh, the Christian life is not going to be all roses and, and, and a walk through the park. Okay? He desires that you would get up and fight. And he says, take up this shield of faith. After all these things, take up the shield of faith. Now this shield, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, this is not the small shield that they would use for parrying, like a circle shield like you would see in all the movies. Uh, this is the large, oblong, four-cornered shield. Okay? It's shaped like a door. Uh, it's not the circular kind. Um, it was about two and a half feet wide, about four and a half feet long, so that you could hide behind it. It covered the entire body as you crouch. Sometimes it was covered with metal or leather and what they would do is they would get together and they would form a phalanx which is they would line their shields up and then they would overlap their shields all together okay and so with this big shield um archers would stand behind them you've probably seen in some movies sometimes they would have the long spear behind them right there would be uh, their friends behind them and they would have their shield and they would come in with that long spear and stab and then they would come back out or they would have archers from behind. And what he's saying is when you have this shield, you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. Now, the flaming missiles, the word there for missiles is any pointed weapon. 
okay? An arrow, a dart. This could be propelled by bows or darts or spears or javelins. The arrows, what they would used to do, and just think, you could think Lord of the Rings, right? When you see this ocean of arrows coming, and, all, and, and you just see them come on down, right? Now every movie has it where all these arrows go up and all these arrows go down, right? But what they used to do is uh, they would wrap it in cloth and the cloth would be soaked in pitch or tar and then they would light it. And as the pitch would pierce, it would set a flame to anything that would catch fire. And so God would have, God, Paul is saying, I want you to think about this, okay? Now the soldier would be tempted to throw off the shield because it's set on fire, but he has to hold on or else he won't be protected. And so what did they used to do? Well, these shields, they would either be formed uh, covered with metal or they would cover them with a bunch of leather. And they would take their shields and dunk it in water. Okay? And as they would pull it out in water, as the flaming missiles would come, as the arrows would come, it would hit the wet leather and the fire would go out. It'd be extinguished. It'd be put out. Now, uh, when we talk about the shield of faith, God desires for you that when we step out, the, the word here for faith, he's not using it as a system of doctrine. Okay? The word there for faith, sometimes in Jude, it's used once and all delivered for the faith. And what that means is, using the article, what that means is it's a system of doctrine. It's a set of beliefs that anyone who calls themselves a Christian, they have to hold to. What he's talking about here is not a system of doctrine, a set of beliefs. What he's talking about here is the actual, uh, the actual exercise of faith, application of faith. It is the Christian who takes God at his word. It is the Christian who actually believes the promises of Christ. It is a Christian who looks at the word of God and says, I want to do that or I believe in that and I believe God's way is right. And so what Paul is saying now is when you go out there, if you go not believing in the promises of God, not believing in the hope of God, whenever those fiery darts come, you are not going to be able to defend yourself. Why? Because you're open. You're vulnerable. You're doubting the very personality, the very essence of who God is himself. You're doubting his faithfulness. See? And see, this faith needs to be strengthened, needs to be established. Faith has to have something to hold on to. Okay? Not like the way the world teaches. You know, like, it drives me nuts. Okay? Whenever the world tries to teach about faith. You'll see it. Oh, man, you just got to have faith. Like faith is some kind of, for them, faith is some kind of uh, thing that is by itself, that has no connection to any kind of reality. The Bible doesn't talk about faith like that. The Bible talks about faith as having an object. And what God would have you to protect your mind in this world, to protect your thoughts, to protect how you believe, to protect your faith, your hope, your joy, God would have you to rely on the promises of God. And if you're not relying on the promises of God, not believing in his word, not believing in what he says, you're susceptible for these attacks. Let me show you in um, how this works, okay? In... Let me see if I could find it. In Romans. Turn with me to Romans. In Romans. R Romans chapter 10. Look at here. Romans chapter 10.
Romans chapter 10. Look at verse uh, 17. Okay, He says here, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The faith is not by itself. It's connected. There's got to be some kind of attachment. And brothers and sisters, if you're not in the word of God, if you're not connected to the word of God, if you're not being exposed to the word of God, you will doubt. You will doubt. Notice um, uh, the flaming missiles are when you doubt God, when you despair. And uh, not putting on your shield is the failure to act in faith in who God is and what he is as one commentator put it. It's not just a lack of faith, but now you're being susceptible to attack. You're susceptible to the attack of false teaching. You're susceptible to the attack of despair. You're susceptible to the fact of discouragement. You're susceptible to the attack of depression. You start to think that maybe God's ways don't work. You start to think that maybe God doesn't have his best, your best interests in mind. You start to doubt his goodness to you. God wants you to put on the shield of faith. Secondly, going back to Ephesians, he says, he says, take the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. Notice, the helmet is a military head covering. Some of the helmets were made of molded metal, others with leather, with metal plates. Portions of it would cover the face, uh, it was used to protect from the strikes of the broad sword. In Isaiah 59, you don't have to turn there, Yahweh says himself that he puts on a helmet, a helmet of salvation. He says in Isaiah 59, 17, he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. And now, Yahweh, the Jehovah God, talking about the he, the helmet of salvation of which he uses to judge the enemies and to protect his people. He's saying he takes this helmet and he gives it to us. Now this helmet doesn't mean becoming a Christian because it uses the word salvation. It's addressed to Christians who are told to put it on. Only Christians have this armor to wear it because it's God's armor for his people. What it's talking about is the full gamut of what salvation is. When we talk about salvation, salvation could not only, should not only be seen as in the past tense. Okay? Salvation has to be seen in three different dimensions. Okay? Salvation is first, as one commentator put it, is you are saved from the penalty of sin. That is justification. Okay? In the past, because of what Christ has done, and because of the basis of that, as I put my faith in him, his righteousness is applied to me. And now I know that I am forgiven forever. And that has occurred in the past. But salvation could also be seen in the present. That is, not, I'm not just saved from the penalty of sin, but I'm saved from the power of sin. Such that now I don't have to be enslaved to my sin. I don't have to be dominated by my sin. I now have power, and this is what we're talking about all in Ephesians, right? I now have power to fight. I don't have to wallow in the dirt, in the mud. I can get up, but not in my strength, in the power of Christ, right? You can actually do this. I love this. Doesn't this give hope? I don't have to be there in my sin. I don't have to be there in my doubt. But also, the, the salvation, salvation should also be seen in the last way, and that is in the future. So if we are saved from the penalty of sin, we are also saved from the power of sin. Salvation is also described in the future that we will be saved from the presence of sin itself. That in heaven, we will no longer have sin around us. And I think this is what the helmet of salvation is talking about. That we would have on the forefront of our minds, knowing that we've been saved, knowing that it's all settled, but knowing also that we look forward. We look forward that all this battle is going to be done. And all this fighting is going to be done. And that thought should rest upon our head. Why do I get that? Look at, uh, look at um, 
1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul uses the same kind of imagery. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Since we are of the day, let us be sober. And now he's using this kind of language again. Let, since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And now he says, and as a helmet, here's a little modifier, the hope of salvation. Now, clearly Paul is talking about, talking to the saved ones in Thessalonica. He's talking to believers in Thessalonica. But he is talking about the future hope of salvation. In other words, part of the armor of God is to know and to be resolved and to be confident that I have a place with my God in heaven, that it is secured, that my salvation and the fight that I'm in right now will soon end. That's where I want to be, brothers and sisters. I hope your heart longs for that. Right. Church planting is hard work, isn't it? Amen. Isn't it hard work? Talking to people and reaching out because we love them and we want Christ to be known. We want his glory to be known. We want people to know the same salvation we know. We want folks to know, though, uh, we want folks to grow in the Lord and to have faith in him because he has changed our lives. Right. And to meet folks and, and to talk folks to, to that. But you know what? There's going to be a time, brothers and sisters, when it's all going to be done. Amen? And he wants you to have that on the forefront of your mind, that we are actually fighting towards the end and that the war has already been won. We just got to fight the battles in between. Put on the hope of salvation. Past sins, failures, relational problems, anything that may seem negative, a lack of fruit in ministry, a lack of changed lives in your loved ones, in your kids, your parents, your friends, unsaved spouse, child, parent, Friends constantly reject the gospel. They can attack you. They can tempt you to give up. They can tempt you to give up. And yet God would say, put on the armor of God, child of, child of God. Be a soldier. I've given you this helmet. Consider this. There will be a day when it's all done, when the hope of salvation will be realized. And lastly, lastly, Scripture, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, this is major, okay? And we got to sink in here a little bit, okay? Because this is now, he turns from all these defensive weapons, and now he turns to the only offensive weapon that you have, okay? And this is telling. We don't have arrows like the devil, right? We don't have a javelin. We don't have spear. We have one weapon. One weapon that we are to wield, that we are to be good at, okay? And it's called the sword of the Spirit, which is clearly the Word of God. Now, this sword is not the big broadsword. There are two different swords that the Romans used. There's the big broadsword where people would try and lop your head off with, right? This one is a small sword, which was sometimes six inches to 18 inches, about this big. And you would come in with the shield and then come in with a, small, a small jabbing stab. It was the hand-to-hand -hand combat in a sheath. Uh, most historians say that Rome conquered by that sword. Okay, that small sword. It's not a broad sword with big sweeping strokes, but it was the smaller one used for precision. Peter used this sword to defend Jesus, if you recall. When they came to arrest him, Peter grabbed the sword and cut the servant's ear, right? James was put to death by the sword. Uh, and the word of God is compared to a sharp sword in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And then he says, it's not just the sword, but it's the sword of the Spirit. 
Manny, the AC, I think, turned off. Feeling kind of hot. It always comes off. Huh? Thanks, man. Sword of the Spirit. Now, the Spirit is indeed the origin of the Word. We believe that the Spirit is the author of the Word. But the emphasis here is that the Spirit is who makes the sword effective. Okay? In other words, you have the Word of God given to us. It's completed Word of God. right? But in order for the Word to be effective, we need the Spirit of God to take the things of God the word of God, and to pierce people's hearts. And you cannot be ashamed of using the word of God. You cannot be shy of using the word of God. Why? Because it's the only weapon that you have. It's your only weapon to fight against lies. It's your only weapon to encourage. It's your only weapon to share so that people can be saved. It's your only weapon to remove the cloud of doubt. And God says, this is yours. And he says, I have. This is the sword of the Spirit, and I will make it efficacious. I will make it work by sending my Spirit, myself. It's what, the Spirit is what gives the Word of God its power. The Spirit is what gives the Word of God its penetration. In our hearts. Notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. As we're there. And you'll see here. Oh, excuse me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verse 5. And Paul is talking. In verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you making mention. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. Verse 4. Knowing brethren beloved by God his choice of you. Again election. When, when Paul encourages, he tells them that they're elect because it solidifies your faith. It keeps you strong. It keeps you understanding that God's love is not going to change towards you. I love that, right? And then he says here, verse 5, look at the text here. It says here, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. Now notice, it does come in word. It has to be objective truth being preached from the Word of God. Okay, It has to be truth that is extracted from the Word of God and told. But he says here, the gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, when the Word of God is wielded and when the Spirit of God takes it, takes it and pierces people's hearts, it finds its effects and it changes lives and it changes minds and it softens hearts and it reveals sin. That's why you cannot be ashamed of it, brothers and sisters. Because when you're ashamed to bring up the Word of God, when folks have problems and you don't bring the Word of God, what's happening is you take it away, right? And the Spirit is saying, where is my sword? I desire, he wants, he wants to save, he wants to change, and he can't use, right? He can't use, you can't use you unless you bring up the sword of God. Why? Because he desires to use truth. He doesn't work apart from the truth. Okay? He always points back to the truth, right? Because he wants to reveal who Christ is. Notice. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, the word there, Word of God, he doesn't use logos, he uses rhema, which is a different word. It means statements or arguments. Using the Word of God accurately, not in broad strokes. See, Satan wants to distract. He wants to cause doubt. He wants to, give, uh, he wants to introduce worldliness in your eyes and in your mind and in your life such that you don't uh, listen to the word of God. And what the Bible is saying is, as a soldier of Christ, to stand, brothers and sisters. And we're talking about this because this is real theology and this is real life. Okay? When you leave on Monday, when you go to your work on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, as you are working or in, when you're in school, you will see the spiritual battle. And if you're not prepared and if you've left your sword at home rather than in your mind and in your heart, 
you won't be prepared for the battle. You're leaving your gear at home. Okay? Now, why do we have to use the Word of God? Well, let's take a look, and we're going to just look at a little bit of description of the Word of God. Okay? We're going to go through some famous verses. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Notice in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What do we gather from here? Well, first, he says, All scripture is inspired by God. Okay? What does that mean? That it is divine in origin. The word there, inspired, uh, it's not a good translation. It should be more God-breathed. And, wh and what that means is that it comes from his action. It comes from his activity. The word of God is from God. The word of God is made because of his effort. The word of God has come to be because of his all-sovereign activity in the hearts of men to inscripturate the word of God. He says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And then it says to be adequately equipped for every good work. Not only is the word of God divine in origin, but the word of God is sufficient. Okay. It is sufficient. It is able to prepare me for everything I need to do as a Christian. It is able to prepare me for all my life. It says in um, Peter as well, he has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. In other words, all that I need to live a godly life, all that I need to prepare for ministry, all that I need to live and to make decisions and to live in this life in a way that pleases Christ, all that is pertaining to salvation, all that is pertaining to my soul is answered in the word of God. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, for teaching, telling me what to believe, for reproof, for telling me not what to, for telling me what to do, for correction, for telling me not what to do, and for training in righteousness, for telling me uh, what to believe. Okay. He, he covers all of the all of the aspects. Adequate, equipped for every good work. It prepares for ministry and life. So it's divine. It's sufficient. Go to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. Why we need to have the word of God live in us. Okay. Marinate. Marinate. Psalm 19. We know this, ver uh, this psalm. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. So he's talking about creation and how God reveals himself in creation. But you notice in verse 7, now he turns, okay? God reveals himself in two ways, through creation, and now, more specifically, through his word. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 7, he says, The law okay, of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. In other words, what he's doing in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The word there for law, precepts, commandments, these are all different synonyms emphasizing different things about the word of God. And what the Bible is saying is that God's word is perfect, without flaw, infallible, without error, inerrant. It, whatever it states, it is true. There is no error in it. It is not wrong. When the world's philosophies and the word of God contradict each other, the word of God is right. Why? Because of its source. It was funny. Um, my wife was reading this article, 
and I think they're doing a, a study, and it came out from Johns Hopkins, and they're starting to realize, they're realizing that um, men and women are actually different. They're actually realizing that. After all these studies, they're saying that transgenderism and teaching kids to be transgenders at a young age is actually harmful. And yet, the Bible says, man and woman, he made them. Do you get it? The law of the Lord is perfect. It never makes a mistake. It's us who just don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear it on our lives. But I think what's more striking Okay. And this is why the word of God is so important. Okay. The law of the Lord is perfect. What's the next section? What is it? Restoring the soul. I believe that. I do. I've belie- I believe it in my life when I've been broken right? because of my own sin, because of what sins have been committed ac- upon me. And I don't feel like, sometimes you don't even feel like going on. And God's word gave me grounding. The word there is restoring. You can translate that into healing. Healing. I don't believe that other philosophies can heal you. And what I mean by healing, I'm not talking about a cut on your arm or something like that. Go to the doctor, please, okay? <laughs> if you need medical attention, go, okay? What I am saying is, in regards to the soul, Jesus reigns supreme. And he desires for you to depend on the word of God because in it has the power to make you whole again. Have you been broken? This world's been tough. Have you been hurt? You feel like, uh, I, don't, I don't feel like, I don't feel like doing anything. just feel like just chilling, right? God, I promise you, but more than my promise, God promises you. His word can heal you. I remember I was in college. And there was a gal I was sharing the gospel with, um, we had many bio classes together. And uh, my, my roommate and I were sharing the gospel. And she admitted to us that she was um, abused as a child, sexually abused. And I was just sitting there thinking, how, how, could, this, how could someone do that, right? This woman right here. She was there broken and weeping. And we shared the gospel with her. And she got saved. And she's whole again. She's healed. And she helps others. And she serves. She's married to a wonderful Christian guy. They serve Christ together. And God has healed her. But it was nothing I could do. Do you understand? I can't do that work. But God can. Amen? And so when you remove the word of God from your life or ignore it or let dust collect on it, brothers and sisters, you're removing 
the very healing, restoring, whole-making power of the Word of God because you close it. The Word of God is a source of happiness. Luke chapter 11, 28 says, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. The word there for blessed is not just a... Sometimes when you hear the word blessed, you kind of think, oh, that's just holy language. We don't use that. The word there for blessed, all it means is happy. Makarios, I'm happy. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. He who is most, you are happy when you're most holy. Did you know that? It's a source of blessing. First Peter chapter 2 says it's a source of growth. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow in respect to salvation. If you think you will grow in the Christian life and you are not surrounded by the word of God, you're not learning the word of God, you're not submitting to the word of God, you're not reading the word of God, you're not hearing the word of God preaching, you will not grow. Why? Because the Bible says you have to grow through the word. You have to eat. Look at this, Hebrews chapter 4, what the Word of God is. In Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, notice. The word of God is living. We read this this morning. And active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Same sword, right? What can it do? Notice, it pierces as far as the division of soul and spirit, but both joints and marrows and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is why I think worldly advice, worldly philosophy, worldly therapy does not go deep enough. It deals with behavior problems. It may deal with childhood. But the Bible says it goes right to the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. The reason why I don't believe it works is because it doesn't go deep enough. It doesn't penetrate the heart. The word of God can penetrate and heal. And it is sharp and it fillets and exposes sin. The word of God also brings faith. We read Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. The word of God cleanses. We remember in Ephesians chapter 5 that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Now, how do you apply that? How do you apply that? In Ephesians, go back to Ephesians with me. This is sad because there are many ministries. They are shouting and they're hollering without the word of God. They're not explaining the word of God. They're not teaching the word of God. They, they don't there's no clarity on God. There's just kind of this fogginess about Christ and the cross. The atonement, the cross is unclear. They always talked about being wrapped in his love, waves of embrace, filled with happiness, and it's just this cloud, this undefined jello, right? They claim spurious modern-day prophecy, yet they ignore the sure and confirmed prophecy in the Word of God. There's no firmness or personally how do you apply this? Well, you've got to have the sword at the ready. Folks who are not in the word, not receiving preaching, not receiving fellowship around the word, this is what happens, okay? Trials come and they start going down this path of sin and they sin and they sin more and oftentimes you sin to alleviate the guilt from sinning. So you sin more and you go down this spiral and then when you're at your bottom, you go, how did I get here? I'll tell you how you got there. You stopped listening to the word of God. You stopped going to places where you could hear the word of God. You stopped having the word of God examine you. 
I remember one statement one student said before, I, um, I thought I went to seminary to study the Word of God. When I went to seminary, the Word of God studied me. We need to be filleted by the Word of God. I need to read the Word of God because I'm, my heart is so deceptive. I need the truth to unveil it. I need to have it at the ready. So, brothers and sisters, bring glory to Christ by fighting, fighting for His glory. Always be prepared. Never yield. Stand firm. Hold on to truth and to righteousness and the gospel and faith and salvation and scripture. Hold on to all of that. God has given you all of that for your benefit, for your growth. So you can stand again, whole, strong in Christ. Why don't we pray? Father in heaven, thank you that we could rest in your word. We could rest in what you have done in Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would use this for your glory. We pray that we would rely on your strength, rely on your weapons, and trust in you. Father, I just pray for that hurting saint who doesn't know what's going to happen in, in the next few days. I pray, Father, that you would encourage him, encourage her. May they put on the armor. May they be in your word. I pray if there is someone who is examining these things, that Christ would be revealed, that it is Christ who strengthens, that it's all about Jesus. We can't do this Christian life apart from all the things that Christ has purchased and he has made available to us. Help us to sing with full hearts. Bless our fellowship even today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.